Welcome to Emerging Technology Horizons. I'm Mark Lewis, the Executive Director of the National Defense Industrial Association's Emerging Technologies Institute. And with me on today's episode is the Honorable Michael Kratzius. Uh, Michael, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, you've had an amazing career so far. Um, you are currently the Managing Director at Scale AI, where you lead all of corporate strategy. Um, you, you assume that position. Uh, coming directly uh, from the White House, where you were the fourth chief technology officer of the United States, uh, worked with the Office of Science Technology Policy. Um, Michael was also uh, the acting undersecretary of defense for research and engineering, which essentially supervised all of uh, science and technology in the Department of Defense. That includes oversight of the Missile Defense Agency, DARPA, the Space Development Agency, the Defense Innovation Unit, as well as all the, the science technology prototype efforts. Um, overseeing the lab activities, the FFRDCs, the whole nine yards. Um, so I, I should say uh, it was my privilege to actually work, work with Michael in, in both of those roles. Um, when you were when you were in the White House CTO, I was running an organization that did some dumb deep dive support, and we worked on a daily basis. And then then I left you. I went to the Pentagon. You followed, and we were working together again on an absolute daily basis. So so that was absolutely absolutely phenomenal experience. Um, I would tell you that you know un, un, under under Michael's leadership, you know, the White House truly reoriented U.S. national technology policy. You know, identified some key explicit primary focus areas that that really made sure that America continued to lead um, in, a, in a list of emerging technologies which I think will be familiar to any of the, 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 the listeners or viewers of, of this podcast. You know, you had a special emphasis on artificial intelligence, but, you know, across the board, everything from uh, reinvigorating supersonic flight, one of my personal favorite topics, um, hypersonics was the key area, but also looking across the, 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 the industrial base. And, and you brought that same skill set to, to the Pentagon as, as well. And so, so, Michael, again, thank, thank, you for, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. No, thank you, Mark. It's uh, it's tremendous to, to catch up with you and uh, and be here with you today. So, so I, w I want I guess if I can, I, I kind of want to start off. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Scale AI? What what your role is as as a managing director involves? Yeah, absolutely. So, so as as you may know, Scale AI is a essentially a, an, an enterprise AI company. What we try to do, and our core mission is to help uh, accelerate uh, AI applications across industries. So the idea is how can you create tooling uh, and other services to sort of help the pace at which artificial intelligence is deployed across a wide variety of industries. And, and really sort of our core thesis and sort of insight into the world is that, um, you know, most people sort of actually actually treat data as, a, as an afterthought. And in the world of AI, that's a huge, huge problem, because if you have bad data, you have you have bad AI. So what we try to do is sort of accelerate this development of AI by saying, you know, data in itself is actually the new code. We provide the data and the tools that, that are really necessary to, to deploy AI as, as easily as one would, would potentially deploy, deploy code. So we, uh, we provide a lot of different sort of infrastructure tools to, to, to help developers and others and, and try to solve very hard AI-related problems for, for very large enterprises as well. Um, but... Uh, Amazing company. I'm excited to be here. We, we, we just raised our, 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 our latest round a couple months ago at a, at a seven billion valuation, and uh, so it's been it's been a fun ride. We work with great customers, including the U.S. Air Force, U.S. Army, and and even in the commercial sector, folks like PayPal and iRobot, Square. So it's uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Interesting. You must you must have a lot of good stories about the difference between working with a government sponsor and working with with uh, the PayPal's of the world. 
It is. You know, I I always tend to feel like when you usually work with with a government customer, they're always, you know, two or three years behind where where commercial customers are. And and, and a lot of what it takes to to, to make a difference when when working with the government is is a lot around education. It's, It's showing them what and how sort of best in class in the private sector are operating, what they're working on, how they execute on projects, and show them that it too is possible in the federal government if you yeah. put your mind yeah. to it and, and kind of align resources correctly. I know, I know you and I had previously, when we were in the Pentagon together, we would, we would kind of lament the fact that many of the developments in AI were started from federal investments, and yet now we were in the position of the government trying to bring in those commercial capabilities that that the government had somehow had a, had a hand in starting in the first place. Um, no, it's 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 so true. You tend to see over history as you see some sort of tremendous basic early stage sort of research development that comes out of that comes out of the government in some form or fashion, and and the real accelerant oftentimes to to, to sort of full scale deployment happens in the private sector. And the question is like, how, how can you bring that back at a at, at at a at a pace and at a at a quality level that that kind of meets the what what you need in in sort of Pentagon related problems? Yeah, absolutely. And I you know one of the things that I I always admired about you know the the two key roles that you filled um, in government was you, you brought that industry perspective. I thought it was a very unique perspective. Um, and and uh, kind of the, the fresh set of eyes with with, with which you viewed the government um, was was actually um, uh, very effective in solving in, in, in getting a start on solving some of the problems that, that we were tackling. Yeah, I mean, to me, I think the truth is there, there are other you know the, the most of the problems that the government is is trying to solve are not are not particularly unique. There are other people in the world who have solved them in slightly different contexts already. And and the question is just, how do you take those learnings and actually uh, apply them to what often is a, a much more complicated bureaucracy? And if you can if you can find a way to kind of wade through that mess and, and figure out how to do something right, it can, you can make a really, really big difference. Yeah, so that, that's a really great into, lead into, you know, one of, the, one of the first questions I wanted to ask is, is given your experience, given your knowledge, how do you think the government can actually accelerate the adoption of artificial intelligence and, and truly leverage the capabilities, all that AI could do for the government and especially the Department of Defense? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's there's lots of ways to do it. I think the the, the, the most important and I think oftentimes the, 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 I guess the first way to think about it is don't believe that by simply assigning uh, an AI lead at an agency is going to somehow solve all of your AI problems. And, you know, bracketing the issues in government for a second, this is a actually perennial problem in, in the private sector as well. For, for many sort of traditional legacy businesses out there, their solution to trying to get AI brought into their business practices is by hiring, you know, some sort of like, you know, AI skunk works lead that has sort of like two people who report to him. And then they go out and try to figure out what are like cool, innovative AI ways to like integrate into these companies. And if you think about these sort of multi-billion dollar companies that have tons of business lines spread all across the world, you know, having a couple of guys brainstorming on like, you know, pilot projects on it, that's not going to change the direction of, of the particular company. Or if it does, it's going to be, it's going to be, um, it's going to be a very slow pace. And I think that lesson should be applied in, in the federal government. Like, yes, there probably should be someone who's designated as an AI person that can report up the chain through, through political leadership. But what you have to sort of, in order to have sort of larger scale applications, you have to understand that it's a it's a whole of agency approach to trying to incorporate this, this, this into processes. And I think the example that we're seeing at, at DOD with kind of the, the, the early growing struggles of, of the Jake is a great example 
example of, of why you need to be really thoughtful about this. Simply sort of assigning an organization that's like the place to do AI doesn't necessarily mean that that all the other services and all the other co-coms and everyone else is going to suddenly start using them as a resource for, for AI. So to me, I think kind of the, the, the most important accelerator of this is, is thinking very carefully around how you can sort of d- d- diffuse the applications across all the actual end users rather than just assigning one person to be the AI guy. No, that absolutely makes sense. I, I, I don't know if you would agree, but one of the things that I, I, I witnessed was there was frankly a, a certain lack of understanding of what AI actually was and what it could do in the Pentagon. It, it, frankly, at times there there were some cases where it seemed to be buzzwordy. All right, we're going to sprinkle some we're going to sprinkle some AI into this project now. You know, my my joke was we you go to the AI store, buy a little bit of AI, open your can of AI, sprinkle it on whatever you're doing, and and you solve your problem. And yeah. No, I, I, I think you're totally right. And I think it's I think it's an issue that it gets a sort of perennial across Washington. They they love to chase chase buzzwords, whether it's big data or whether it's AI or whatever it is that's coming around around the turn, I think people just sort of sort of gravitate to it. Um, I think I think to me and, and something that sort of I think about in my current role and I did in my past roles as well, I think one of the most important things that needs to be done is is sort of back to what you were saying, better education across the end users around what this technology actually is and how you get to a place where where AI can actually make a difference. And I think oftentimes you don't just go to the store and buy one unit of AI and like plug it into your system. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's a much larger and harder pro- process and project. And to me, I think what we talk about a lot and what I think is really important to share is, is how critical the underlying data is to the actual AI solution. So you could recognize that, you know, that, that there is some very, uh, there could be a great algorithm to be used to do sort of like change detection based on sort of SAR imagery that you have. Now, the question is that the, the, the quality of that output is only as good as the underlying data that, that has trained it. So as an end user, I think, you know, most folks are just they just want to see that front end that shows them the, the change detection and shows them like where to go look or whatever. But at, at its core, in order to have that succeed, you have to build this ever changing and, and ever updated cycle of, of, of data that sort of flows through the system. And, and I think that that multi-step process of actually implementing these algorithms with a, with a back end of, of AI labeling and training that happens in perpetuity, I think is important to share because it's not, it's not, you know, buying, you know, a, a, a conventional procurement of a, of a single item, and then you have no, never have to update it again. It's a constantly updating, sort of living, breathing model. Right. Of course, from a defense standpoint, that also can introduce a vulnerability. You know, if you're the adversary, you might look to corrupt data. That's not necessarily a problem that the commercial sector would have, or or, or is it? Is it? Uh, it, 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 it is. I think, I think in the, in, in the DOD context, I think you, you're probably more, more at risk of that. So I think, I think that really goes back to the, the critical importance of, of constantly sort of updating, refining, and, and, and teaching your model. Because if your model is stagnant and you're not sort of labeling new data and training it with the new data based on the new circumstances, you could get in a position where the adversary could very quickly understand what the weaknesses are of, of that particular model. Um, and I think that, that 
that's something that you know we talk about a lot at scale and why, why it's so critical for whatever industry that you're in to constantly be refreshing the data. And the questions that you as a, as a, as a leader at the Pentagon are trying to answer today are definitely going to be different than types of questions you're going to be answering in six months from now or a year from now. So you must create a, a pipeline or a system or a process that allows you to be able to have these models be a lot more, lot more robust over time. Right. And that's not something the Pentagon is always very good at, is it? <laughs> uh, it is. It is not. You know, I think the Pentagon is really good at at buying sort of single items or single you know things, and this idea of, of needing sort of constant constant maintenance sometimes is a is 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 not something that is familiar in the world of of, of software. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So that kind of leads into you know another aspect of this is what which is that you know we're we are in a race with some peer competitors. And, you know, especially with China, they are investing very heavily in AI. They've, they've made no secret of that. Um, they've, they've declared that they want to be the world leader in AI. Um, what, can you reflect on, on the competition or the race between the U.S. and China? Where do you think we stand and what should we be concerned about? Absolutely. Yeah, I think we, we worked on this even t together a few years ago. I think one of the, the, the most important things for me to assess before you can even start sort of making these conclusions is to, to actually be able to get to a ground truth or as close to ground truth as you can on what actually is happening in China. What is the CCP actually doing? And, and the, you know, the, the CCP has a, has, has a, a knack for being able or, or very effectively con continually putting out press releases about big dollars being spent, big dollars being investment, big breakthroughs happening. And the question is, how true is that? How true is that? And and I think and and I think you know we as sort of a, a, a you know as a, as a, as Americans and as a think tank community needs to kind of dig into that and be able to say you know when the Chinese say they're going to spend you know ten billion dollars in AI in this province over the next year like did they actually deploy that capital was it actually used for research did it actually go into an investment and I think and I think some some great research was done by by Stippy by also uh, CSET at Georgetown who right. has kind of right. has kind of poked this issue but I think we need to do a lot more to essentially be able to empower our policymakers to be able to actually know what we're competing against because if you're competing against whatever headline is running in the latest you know tech tech blog you're probably not going to be making a good a good policy um, conclusion now all that being said i think um, I still believe that the U.S. is 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 a leader in in artificial intelligence. I think there are there are areas or subdomains within it where where the Chinese have stepped up, and I think the most obvious one is is probably around computer vision. It's a place where they've invested quite a bit um, based just on their facial recognition technology, CCV, CCTV, and all sorts of other stuff. Um, but broadly speaking, in the world of AI, we still have you know the best universities, we have the best students graduating from universities, we have the best startups, we have the most well-funded startups. Um, so there's a number of axes you could kind of look at, and I think we, we continue to lead. The question is sort of what is the velocity of, of sort of China's investment and improvement? And I think that's where the questions come up because they they are they're trying very very hard to push ahead very very quickly, and it's incumbent on us to to to, to kind of make sure that 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 we are playing to the strengths of our system. And that was kind of a lot of what kind of we, we thought about in in, um, in the years past. But Absolutely. I think Absolutely. one. To me, one of the most important dynamics is, is is around this question is really this 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 question of of China's track record on human rights, and more importantly, the values that underpin the technology that they develop. You know, 
you know, the CCP is using artificial intelligence to track ethnic minorities, to create social credit scores, to censor the Internet, to, you know, suppress free speech. And those are those are all actions or use cases of AI, which are, are, are sort of very much in, in, in violent opposition to what the West, what you know, the United States, you know, what our Western allies believe in. So for us, it's incumbent that we kind of drive and maintain our leadership position uh, because we want to make sure that the next great AI technologies are underpinned by our values. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I couldn't agree with you more. I know you and I both spent a lot of time on the issue of, of AI ethics and making sure that we had an ethical grounding for all the work that we were doing in, in this area. And, and, and yeah, I also, one of the things that keeps me up of, up at night when I think about Chinese investments in AI is, is the potential to misuse the technology, which they've already, which they've already demonstrated, frankly. Yep. So, yep. Uh, I agree with you. Um, so that kind of leads into, you know, obviously, AI is, you know, critical capability, critical technology. There are other emerging technologies. You know, we, we had that we had our list of eleven different technologies, um, and 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 you know, you had a leadership role, maybe the leadership role in setting that technology agenda in the White House for for a number of years, mm-hmm. and then then in in the Pentagon. Um, I mean, if if you could kind of comment on the progress that we've made, how how do you think we're doing? In advancing these emerging technologies, what have we accomplished so far, and what what do we need to keep doing to to make sure we're ahead of the competition? Absolutely, I, I think we have. And I think there's this general sort of recognition now in Washington, more so than you probably had four or five years ago, around the importance of driving through sort of organized, uh, more structured government programs, the way that you can sort of drive these leadership positions in important emerging technologies. And from a congressional, you know, action, you know. Um, you know, the National Quantum Initiative Act was passed, which essentially sort of created a national program on quantum leadership. You know, our um, American AI Initiative was uh, sort of codified into law as the, the National AI Initiative Act. And, and kind of that that was signed, signed became became law at the, at the tail end of, of, of 2020. Um, and we see a lot of work with a lot of our, our 5G efforts were, again, taken up by Congress and, 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 and pushed through. Um, we see a lot of action, as you see on semiconductors, you know, chips legislation, can, you know, a little bit slower than the others but yep. that continues yeah, right. <laughs> we'll see what how that pans out but but in any case you again you see bipartisan consensus on the need to do something um, in, in that area so um, on, on the positive side I think we have seen this has become in, in an environment or a time when Washington is extraordinarily polarized there is this 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 core center of, of, of emerging technologies which in a bipartisan fashion, everyone realizes we have to do something about it. And I think to me, what I'm seeing is there's this general coalescing around a, a number of sort of um, axes or, or, or foundational pillars, if you will, of how these strategies generally develop. And I think that that's good progress. I think, you know, in, in for the, on, on the first front, it's what do you do around around research and development? How can you ensure that all the money that we spend as a federal government is better coordinated in a way that we're not doing duplicative work, that we're sort of organized towards a, a more structured R&D plan? And we've seen that with AI and quantum and, 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 and even some of our 5G spending. And I think it's done, you know, we're not being overly prescriptive, but at least we're sort of like moving the ship in a, in, in, in a more consistent direction as a, as a federal government. I think the second piece, which I think you just mentioned, is around sort of these, these re- regulations and policies. We need to make sure that we are sort of removing the barriers to innovation in these particular emerging technologies, whether that's allowing supersonic jets to fly, whether it's, you know, 
making sure that AI-powered um, medical diagnostics and other types of technologies are, are sort of approved in a, in, in a safe and expeditious manner, um, whether autonomous vehicles can be driving, whether drones can be flying. These are all areas where, you know, policy changes can actually push innovation forward. And I think we've seen sort of, again, a, a bipartisan consensus on being able to sort of get, the, get these technologies kind of out there in a, from a regulatory standpoint. Um, I think the third area, which continues to be something that a lot of a lot of folks watch and think about and are making progress on, is on the workforce front. Um, in, in the sense of we need to be educating more Americans in these critical fields in order to be the ones who will make the next great discoveries and next great technologies in the years ahead. And it's very hard to do, and it's a it's a long it's a long cycle. But we have to get more Americans trained and moving. And and, and I think we're we are we're, we're making progress there. And kind of the the, the last axis, which I think you you see actually a lot of emphasis. In, in, in the most recent Biden administration is this question of international engagement. I think it goes back a little bit to, to, to what we were talking about with, with AI in China. It's how do we partner with our allies to, to provide sort of a unified front to, to breakthroughs in, in, in all these emerging tech areas, whether it's, you know, partnering with our allies on 5G related activities uh, and making sure that we're sort of blocking out nefarious actors like Huawei, whether it's with, you know, in, in you know, uh, uh, being able to do AI or other, you know, emerging tech related research projects across borders, whether it's setting sort of standards among, with our allies. I mean, there's lots of ways that that sort of creating that unified front can be very helpful against uh, against CCP. Yeah, we've, we've actually, so here at ETI, we've spoken a lot about the importance of friends, partners, and allies. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, you know, I remind people that, so the United States still is spending the largest amount of s and in, in the world, but China is moving up really quickly. And that sounds bad, but if you add in all of our allies, if you look at the, the next six countries down the list, they are all our closest allies. You add them to our expenditures, it completely swamps what, 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 what the Chinese are, are, are spending. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I would say if, if I... You know, one of the more encouraging developments I've seen over the years is universities that are really stepping up to the plate and becoming more and more engaged in support of national defense. You know, places like you know Texas A&M, their George Bush Center, um, Arizona State. Uh, you know, Michael Crow has been a leader in 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 uh, thing about how a university can align with defense priorities. Uh, Mitch Daniels at Purdue, I mean, he's declared, uh, he's declared uh, uh, defense S&T is one of their top priorities. And so yeah. they're, they're, they're welcoming of, of, of work with the, with, with, with the department, with the government, I think is, has, been, has been, I think, one of, one of the really positive developments that, that I, think, I think we actually... I, I totally get. agree. I think, I think there's been a big, a big shift in the last few years about trying to find, about we've, we've seen more academic institutions much more open to talking about their interest in helping in, in national security. And I think that, that could not be better for the country. I think we could always do more and there's, yeah, <laughs> there's yeah, lots yeah, of others yeah. who, who push the accelerator down, but, but it, 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 it's exciting to see. And I've worked a little bit with some of the, the Purdue folks as well. And, 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 and j just being able to, to kind of watch the excitement that they bring to it and, and even just having university leadership sort of acknowledge that it's important and acknowledge how important it is for our country and our, our long-term security. It can, make, it can go a very, very long way in kind of in making people kind of think about working on things that they, they maybe didn't imagine they ever would. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Michael, our, 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 time, our time is coming to the end. Uh, this is another one where I think we could talk all day about a whole range of subjects, which means uh, it gives me an excuse to ask you back, back on the podcast at some point. But thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed catching up. And... Um, Thanks for everything you've done for the country. I mean, you're you you know you you took a chunk of your life, dedicated it to to the government. Um, it was great having you in the government. I'm delightful to see you applying those skills now back in industry, and 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 um, thank thanks for everything that you've done.
Thank you, Mark. It's been a, been a ton of fun. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot.